0: Tom, th- I feel like I I saw my article today that I wanted to bring to you for this particular cold open. I thought this is something that you are going to relate to, and I don't mean in a weird, dirty way. <laughs> for once, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, this is I, I want to talk to you about some new research. This comes out of Cambridge University of Cambridge. I know Cambridge across it's across the pond mm-hmm. uh, that that talks about the value of being. A mentor. Oh, okay. What do you think about that? Now, you are a mentor. Do you want? To, can you talk just briefly about what you do uh, in in your sort of chosen? Mentorship.
1: Mentoring. Yes. Uh, It's uh, a program called the Young Storytellers Foundation. It's across California, Southern California. And basically, I'm a head mentor, so I oversee 10 to 15 mentors who oversee 10 to 15 young storytellers. They are fifth graders. And together-
0: Also sounds weirdly like a multi-level marketing kind of a scam. It is. I get get a little bit of
1: residuals from all of it. (laughs) You get a set of knives? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We all have an alley rally and I give them a little pep speak. and- Uh, but over two months, um, they together with all of the words actually coming from the child, the young storyteller, they write an original five page screenplay that is then ultimately acted out on stage by working actors in front of the school family and friends. So I guess it's sort of a creative writing literacy program and I'm in charge of a school and I
0: love it. Well, Uh, That's what I want to hear about. Tell me what that love looks like. What does it do for you to do that work,
1: especially in the school that I'm at now? It's incredible. I was just started there last semester. This is a new school. And to see these children open up because at first it's just a weird bunch of weird adults in a room clapping. And wanting to be friends. And they're like, nope. <laughs> like they just, they all want to group in the corner and, you know, look at their phones or whatever. And then week by week, they just open up and open up and they really start to look forward to it. And you can see some of the shyest kids around really find a voice and really. Uh, it really seems to make an impact for them. And a lot of them, because I stay at schools for a long time, I get their little brothers and little sisters who come up and say that their older brother, older sisters are still writing, that it really has turned a corner for them. So it's the Young Storytellers uh, Foundation, and it's just wonderful. I love it that you are actually mentoring yourself out of a job. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh,
0: because I'm well, a like screenwriter, screenwriter yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Oh, I-, I steal all their
1: ideas, Pete. <laughs>
0: Well, this is interesting research because as you can imagine, when you think about the mentor-mentee relationship, the reason we have a mentor-mentee relationship is is to to generally ease transitions for mentees, right? You have a mentor when you go to school, when you start a new job. Uh, you know, smart organizations pair you with a mentor. It's all to, to reduce your anxiety as a mentee, as a new kid, as somebody who's trying something new. Uh it's good to have a mentor that you can ask questions, right? And And in this case, Cambridge, uh, they were looking at statistics in England alone. Mental illness accounts for an annual expenditure on health care of 14 billion pounds and reduction in gross domestic product of 52 billion pounds uh, owing to people that are unable to work to their full capacity, Hmm. says the uh, this particular uh, work out of Cambridge. And so they're trying to help grease the skids, if you will, for people to be able to achieve their full capacity. Well, the research says. All of that aside, that it turns out the act of being a mentor reduces anxiety and improves mental health of mentors themselves in high pressure occupations, uh, says this new study out of the Cambridge Judge Business School uh, that involves the English police force. Oh, right. Fascinating. This is what I mean when I talk about high pressure occupations, people who uh, when you become a mentor uh, and this is why policing was chosen as this setting to study how mentoring can reduce anxiety, Bobby's Uh, Yes, bobbies. They don't uh, they appreciate that oh. anymore. Uh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> I actually don't know. I just want to make you feel that. <laughs> including <laughs> the medical profession and the military. These roles that that require uh, uh, you know feats of intellectual, mental, emotional strength. Right. Okay. That's, that's what they're doing, and so they found, in fact, that all of these roles. It, we suggested strongly that that uh, mentoring, encouraging people, experienced people to become mentors reduces anxieties. It gives them a chance to uh, to explore their relationship with their profession in a way that is healthy, Hmm. in a way that is productive. And I
1: find that just wonderful. That's great. Why is that, do you think? Is it because you're having to see sort of through someone's eyes? You're sort of being an audience surrogate for a new person joining your workforce You know, I'm so glad you said that, uh,
0: Tommy, because I would like to, using my voice, speak on behalf of the study. Oh, quote. Mentoring provided reassurance to the mentors by illuminating how other often junior officers also experiencing anxiety, thereby normalizing their own experiences. By acknowledging that anxieties are common, both the mentees and mentors in this study appeared to be more comfortable discussing such issues and therefore in developing different coping mechanisms right what do you
1: think about that i love that bobby especially especially for police force i mean when i think about all the tv shows i've seen of american uh cop trainees they're always called boots and they're always seem to be treated terribly like the the hazing (laughs) seems terrible and terrifying and so the idea of having someone to talk to having someone to sort of Proverbially, hold your hand. Proverbially, uh, hold your hand through that process. Seems like that could really uh, open up a new kind of understanding. I think
0: that's wonderful. I think it is too. And you know what? It's such a big deal that not only was this did this study come out of, or I should say, was published by the folks at Cambridge. It was co authored uh, by the uh, uh, the folks at the Said Business School at Oxford University and. Oh. Chief Inspector Stephen Carriage of the Cambridgeshire
1: Constabulary. The Constabulary, Tom. That sounds amazing. I want to be a constabulary. <laughs> Just by myself, a one person <laughs> constabulary. You'll always be a constable to me. <laughs>
0: Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Bright. And I'm Tommy Metz III. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it,
1: learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out to us. We want to hear the story of your anxieties. Please email us at huh, something stinky at whatsthatsmell.net. Again, something stinky at whatsthatsmell.net. Yes, that's a choice we made. And with that... <laughs> I, Pete, will go first. You're such a jerk. <laughs> I'm never never letting it go. <laughs> because you did it to annoy me, so I have to bring it. <laughs> I have to let you know that wound is still fresh. <laughs> Ah, it's an idea that's used in books all the time or in TV, uh, but I want to ask you if you have any personal experience with it. Have you ever felt like you were being watched? Well, I didn't. <laughs> and I'm behind you. No. Uh, <laughs> have you ever had that feeling like sometimes people yeah. you have had that feeling?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 What does it feel yeah. like? Okay, so there is both an emotional and a physiological response for me. Uh, the first is, and, and it comes in places that are environmentally sort of challenging for me, right? Well, either it's dark, I can't see, like a dark uh, parking garage or something, or where sound is compromised. Uh, again, parking garage, there's echoes and things. You know, you can't quite place a lot sounds. of time in parking well, garages.
1: It sounds like
0: <laughs> I spend I spend an inordinate amount of time walking yeah. parking garages, and and so I feel like anytime my sense are compromised i get a feeling that uh that i am i'm being somehow surveyed and it's always it is literally i feel it the tingling on the back of my neck right at the base of my skull yeah yeah that's
1: how i yeah because i have never had that feeling i always kind of thought that it only really existed in movies or books (laughs) uh but i've been asking around i feel like you're setting me
0: up no i really do no i'm not i feel like this was a setup you've got me to say something and then oh well i don't
1: have that i do not <laughs> hmm. No, but you are not alone. I've just been as a side note <laughs> been asking people all week about that because I had that idea to start the this anxiety and I am the weird one. The fact that I have no idea what that feels like. I've just never felt that way. Anyways, wow. that that's sort of a clumsy lead in to a listener submission this week, Pete. <laughs> Not clumsy at all, Tom. You're an expert at this. Thank you. In this submission, uh, the listener indicated that she or he would like to go by the name of Chrissy. So that's how we will be addressing this person. Chrissy wrote, I think it's a possibility that I have moments of experiencing ideas of reference and on a much larger scale and sometimes believe that there are too many people in the world who have professions we don't know of. So then why wouldn't there be agents or agencies designed to control or monitor segments of the population to help control the order of things? Maybe it's due to my watching too much Blacklist or spy movies over the years. He sums up again. I sometimes wonder if I and the general populace at large am being monitored and guided through suggestion and or subtle manipulation. It's more of a subconscious type of existential anxiety and not crippling. But it's something I find interesting and perhaps relatable. End quote. Ooh, right. Oh, this is an interesting one. Man. First and foremost, thank you so much for writing in, Chrissy. We appreciate it. And I would like to say that this anxiety has a lot to unpack. So I promise nothing. (laughs) I say we (laughs) we just dive in and let's see what we come up with. Fair enough, Pete? Let's do it. Okay. So while the idea of being watched and manipulated by outside forces isn't new to me, the term idea of reference was. Have you ever heard of that before? No, that's totally new to me, too. Right. Uh, So I looked it up. Basically, Most people tend to believe other people think about them more than they actually do. But ideas of reference are variations on this behavior and occur when a person believes something is referring to them when it's not. In other words, like in Wikispeak, innocuous or coincidental events are taken to have a strong personal significance. As a side note, it is closely related to delusion of reference. That's pretty much the same thing, but the subject refuses to believe otherwise when presented with clear evidence Uh, against that fact. That's where you start getting out to start paranoia and potentially schizophrenia. I do not believe that idea of reference is what Chrissy is talking about. Um, an example given, uh, of an idea of reference that I found on one website is a person shopping in a store might see two strangers laughing and believe that they're laughing at him or her. When in reality, those two people don't even notice the person that doesn't sound like what Chrissy is talking about. What Chrissy's talking about is way deeper and sounds more like a secret government agency looking to control him in secret ways. Do you agree with that?
0: Well, I
1: guess, but I, uh, aren't they kind of the same? thing one has the idea of reference is wrong meaning that you think that people are talking about you but they're not what chris is talking about is there are forces out there that are doing it but hiding their attempts okay okay so i think that's the big difference i do not know the term for what i think chrissy is talking about but i know it gets us into conspiracy theories and so pete i spent part of my week going down the rabbit hole of government mind control conspiracy theories on the internet (laughs) And for I'm so sorry.
0: Oh, my God. I'm surprised you even showed up
1: today. Yeah, that was time really well spent. I have tinfoil hats <laughs> for my tinfoil hat. <laughs> Anyways, here's some stuff that I came up with is the U.S. government definitely has a history of involving unwitting civilians in secret programs. Unfortunately, they've done it quite a lot. Uh, one of the most famous involving mind control was Project MK Ultra. Are you familiar with this? MKUltra. It's like everything you're saying is nonsense to me. I don't know any of these words. Project MKUltra. If you look that up on the internet, your internet will explode. It was led by Dr. <laughs> Ewan between 1957 and 1964 to look into methods of influencing and controlling the mind and extracting information from resisting brains. He would administer uh, ECT therapy, uh, shock therapy at 30 to 40 times the normal power. He would put patients into drug induced comas for months on end. While playing tapes of simple statements or repetitive noises over and over again, a lot of his patients, patients, quote unquote, patients, forgot how to talk, forgot who their parents were and suffered serious amnesia. As a side note, all of this was performed on Canadian citizens because the CIA wasn't willing to risk such operations on Americans. USA, USA. Is this legit? No, this is legit. You can look this. I mean, I did. I took a look. You lo- can look this. Finish that's that. You can, can look it up. You can look it up. But I mean, <laughs> this is a this has been uh, released by the CIA, CIA uh, that okay. MKUltra was right. a thing. Pete, how are you feeling so far? I, I under my own desk. <laughs> I know. <laughs> OK, so <laughs> then I started getting into the power of conspiracy theories. And in 2015, uh, Dr. Sander Van Linden (laughs) uh, wrote a article called (laughs) The Surprising Power of Conspiracy Theories. In his article, he writes that the interesting thing about conspiracy theories is that they start out with a need to confirm a particular premise, like someone or some evil thing must be responsible. And this is what psychologists refer to as a fundamental attribution error, the tendency to overestimate the actions of others as being intentional rather than just simply the product of random situational circumstances. And of course, this speaks to the comfort that you can get in conspiracy theories that uh, people are uncomfortable with the notion of randomness because it lacks meaning. Uh, the only thing randomness communicates is an uncertainty and a lack of agency and control over what is happening in the world. Therefore, it is easier and more comforting, ironically, to simply point our finger at someone or something. Therefore, conspiracy theories serve an important role. They restore a false sense of certainty and control. As a side note, are you a conspiracy theorist at all? Do you have some tinfoil hat stuff that you believe in? I am not one, I think, that is that,
0: uh, is not able to be swayed right like i i am somebody who if you prevent if if you generally if you present to me uh data facts reportage i'll i'll i am i'm capable of changing my mind let's say that
1: yes that is a huge difference that's what separates you from conspiracy theorists In effect, but and so
0: I like to tell myself, yeah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, or I don't believe that there are people out there genuinely doing me evil. And then you read about the Flint water crisis, you know what I mean? Sure, these and and i'm getting increasingly involved in our own local political sphere and i'm i'm constantly surprised at the kinds of conversations that i'm having about which i would know nothing if i hadn't chosen to open that particular door hmm. and you know introduce myself to that area and so i, I find that fascinating uh, but you know i
1: i digress from your Horrific point about Doctor Strangelove, wasn't it? <laughs> so, you do you see how you can get comfort? How some people, uh, if not you, could get comfort from a conspiracy theory? Totally. It and, and how many times can
0: we catalog that? Uh, you know, we bring we bring comfort to ourselves, even when the the choice is discomfort, even when the solution is di- the belief system equates to discomfort. Having a belief system is a sense of comfort and certainty.
1: I think this kind of suggestion and subtle movement is actually hiding in plain sight. And I think we can see it through marketing and we can see it through politicians all the time. Uh, I found in the magazine Money an article called The Science of How Marketers and Politicians Manipulate Us in Everyday Life. And they actually broke it down to a number of different ways. There were three that I liked the most. Number one is black and white choices. Our minds are most comfortable with the simplicity of... Binary thinking. It's A or B. Uh, even when the, uh, situation involved is actually very complex, that makes us a little uncomfortable. And so marketing or politicians will always sort of through labeling, overgeneralizing and meaningless platitudes, they achieve a distortion to make you think that if you just go for brand X, then you are completely solving all your problems. Another one is emotions. Uh, I like this one that they create narratives around products that we can grasp quickly at a simple emotional level. Politicians do the same thing. This is my favorite. You know, when politicians come out uh, to give a big speech uh, and they always point at someone in the audience and give a thumbs up. Mm -hmm. They're not pointing at anyone. (laughs) I don't believe that they know anyone (laughs) in that audience. They're just connecting. They're saying, oh, I know you because I'm a real person. The same way that they uh, this drives me nuts in speeches. They will single out one family or one person and tell their anecdotal story in order to manipulate us into using emotional rather than logical reasoning. They can make us feel that our feelings represent a larger truth. By just pointing out one person or one anecdotal uh, situation. And the last one was subconscious influences that I wanted to bring up. These hidden (laughs) messages are like mental shortcuts. Uh, I found an example of this. Have you ever heard of group consensus?
0: Mm, This I do know a thing or two about. Do you?
1: Yeah. It's uh, if the same person says uh, something three times in a meeting, it has the effect of group consensus. Repetition is powerful. If you hear something three times, all of a sudden it gains truth. It is no longer taken as an anecdote. It is taken as fact. And that's why politicians work so hard to stay on message and advertisers show the same commercials over and over and over again. That's right. So these are just ways that in plain view, we are being manipulated like Chrissy was worried about guided through suggestion and or subtle manipulation and i thought that that's another way of looking at it that we don't need a shadow government uh with a bunch of briefcases and sunglasses (laughs) i don't know if that's what the shadow government wears but uh (laughs) that it's happening to us all the time and i think it's so pervasive it's probably really really hard uh to try to get out get out from it i i sort of felt
0: like you were going to say we don't need another shadow government (laughs) 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 we already have one yeah i don't i don't need multiple personalities Two is enough kind of a thing (laughs) right uh this is a uh not very funny b (laughs) you didn't help chrissy at all i don't think (laughs) no i did not (laughs) hey let me take on your anxiety and talk about how how funny it is because it's really it's not that bad except for it is that bad and we are actually all pod people yeah and we're being
1: raised by the matrix Uh, Pete, I didn't get into the Illuminati and I've got pages and pages on the Illuminati. I am on so many watch lists right now. I think my, I think my dog is bugged. I am going down fast and hard. So, sorry, Chrissy.
0: Tom, my first experience with a tutor was when my parents thought that it was a great idea for me to learn German. Ah, okay. Uh, My grandmother uh, lived for a time in Austria and had taken three of her kids there, not including my mother, Mm -hmm. who uh, she'd already moved out by that point. So my grandmother and three of her six kids moved to Austria and there they attended Austrian schools and came home speaking German. And I think as a result, uh, my mother wanted to make sure that her family wasn't left out. So I ended up in private German lessons for as far as I can remember, all of my life. Mm. Uh, and, And this was in Colorado Springs. Uh, By the way, so opportunities to stand up and practice your German. Not a lot. Yeah, (laughs) no, no. And as a result today, uh, Tom, I don't speak German. Oh, you lost it. Well, yeah. How conversational were Uh,
1: you at your highest?
0: Oh, not really. And I think there are a few reasons uh, that this is the case. I don't I I, I don't now. And I didn't believe in my core that I would ever actually need German. Right. Right. So on the shortest time horizon, I wasn't being graded on it. And on a longer time horizon, I had no plans to move to Germany when I was (laughs) eight. So. I just, I never really thought I would use it. That yeah. was just not a thing that was in my you know future. Now the other thing is I was actually pretty good at it, right? I, I have a pretty solid ear, so I was able to sound German even when I had literally no idea what I was saying. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like there, there's some benefit to that, you know. It got me kind of into theater, and and that that was useful. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I really I I didn't speak German, and and I should say clearly. I do not have an anxiety about the German language, German people, or the study of German and things that are German.
1: Good, because that would just be racist. <laughs> that...
0: <laughs> and that's a completely different podcast. I, <laughs> On the contrary, I give my study of German no thought whatsoever. Okay. Uh, and I do, however, have an anxiety about another subject, uh, one that is decidedly more likely Uh, to be studied in the formative years of our youth uh, and far beyond. And that brings me to the second time in my young academic career that I was fortunate enough to engage the services of a tutor. I am talking about, Tom, mathemophobia. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, that sounds like your equivalent of a hallelujah. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I
1: had a tutor growing up because I was so averse to math and I still am terrible at fractions to this day. (laughs) I remember there is a story that my parents tell that when I was very young, I was having trouble with fractions and they said, what would you rather have one third of a pie or one fourth of a pie? I answered wrong. And apparently at a very young age, I said, well, that's just because I don't like pie. Clever stuff. <laughs> Classic no. Mets. And you have
0: never <laughs> had pie since no. because anxiety. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This is, uh, we're talking about the fear, which in my case, and sounds like yours too, led to a straight up detestation of the study of mathematics and eventually anxiety around performance of mathematical functions entirely. Mm-hmm. That was me. Uh, so let's, what does that look like, uh, this this anxiety around math? And as it turns out, this is a function of working memory, usually, when it comes to math uh, and, and working memory, it's your ability to keep a process running in your head And hold on to it as you build on with new information and math, along with, you know, escape rooms (laughs) requires a lot in terms of working memory. Now, uh, a little bit of a side note, as I was making a few notes for this, I got to this point in my notes, and I started trying to compare uh working memory to a watermelon keg and i wrote nearly a full page of how a watermelon keg is like working memory with rum and coconut rum pineapple juice and you scrape all this stuff out and i got to the end and i realized i don't even know what this is a metaphor for it anymore <laughs> I don't know what you're talking and about. It makes no sense at all. Oh. I had no idea what I was talking about. And I actually am telling you this story because these are the depths to which my math anxiety takes me. Sure. I can't even talk about the anxiety of math without completely derailing to talk about watermelon kegs. <laughs> this is what I mean by working memory getting polluted. Right. Mine gets polluted with watermelon kegs. Yeah. Yours, probably other things. Yep. <laughs> uh, it, it just gets filled up with anxious thoughts and anger and fear and judgment and doubt, and it can't, your working memory can't do the job it's supposed to do, which is to figure out how much damn pie you want to
1: eat. (laughs) And it's enormously frustrating. (laughs) I definitely relate to all of this. Yes. In college, I took a, uh, I was such a, I was a humanities major with a split in, in english and film and i had to take a math class and it was called qrms quantitative reasoning and math studies oh god i don't like even thinking about that no because it was math for people that don't understand numbers it was the <laughs> dumbest thing i've ever done and i think they taught me addition over a semester they're like <laughs> fine go to your Kant or whatever humanity's weirdo and then i never came. i never went back yeah you are not
0: alone, and this is where I bring in our friend Paul McCreary, who teaches at Evergreen State Hi Colleges, you, uh, yeah, Tacoma program in Washington State. He's a faculty member, and he actually assigns a mini memoir of uh, for for new students in his math classes, and he asks him just to say what what is your experience with math, what is your life, your academic career with math, how do you feel about it? And he says, on average, in a class of twenty five students, twenty three will enter not liking math. Mm -hmm. And that, as this article on NPR.org had to actually calculate for me, is 92% if you're keeping track at home. (laughs) And then they say, as if they know I'm reading it, quote, in other words, that's a lot, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, NPR.org. Here we go. Mr. McCreary says, in the memoirs I find, I loved it until sixth grade. And after that, Mr. Hanricon made it impossible. Ah! So they remember the name of the individual, and sometimes they describe the day it happened, that turning point where their interest and love of math fell away. Ooh, That is amazing. Yeah. Some of it, when when you start going down this, uh, when you start going down this, the, the research on this, it, you, you come across this term stereotype threat. Okay. Can you imagine what that means? Have you heard of it? Uh, no. I can. I, out of context, maybe I can figure it out, but go ahead. I almost want you to, out of context, try to figure it out. I'm going to throw you a bone here and yeah. tell you that it's the belief that there are people who can do math and those who can't. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, and and there's a stereotype <laughs> around those who can, and I am totally destroying the concept when I talk about this because it's generally applied to genders, right? Saying that well, only boys can do math, right. and after a certain point, engineering, sciences, STEM classes they're for the boys, and it's led to a massive disparity between men and women in the West, in particular. We miss generations of opportunity to create a culture that nourished excitement in math and science in young women, and we'll be working to undo this mess for generations to come. Hallelujah! Ah. That out of the way. That's I get it. It's terrible. That said, I have a distinct memory of being so wildly outpaced in math by the Asian and South Asian kids, boys and girls, Hmm. that I effectively dropped out of math between the 6th and 8th grades. Now, I'm not saying that to be racist. I'm saying that demonstrates that at some level, I am racist. We're going to come back to that in a minute. (laughs) I promise. But for now, just know that my memory is that these are the kids who trounced me around every corner. And I was, even though they did not intentionally do this, I left elementary school embarrassed hmm. uh, and I barely passed the work itself. And I positively excelled at feeling crappy about it all the time.
1: Oh, so you were a winner. <laughs> you are first in that race. When you said uh, that it was uh, a lot of gender situation involved, I remember that Mattel got in a lot of trouble years ago when they would have a talking Barbie. And one of oh, the yeah. pre-programmed phrases was, math is hard. Oh. Yeah. Mattel, yeah. there's so many phrases. Oh, what was it? Did she
0: sing that song? This is much too hard for me. I can't do this some. Right. I mean, it was those kinds of things I remember in, in kind of that. It was terrible. Yeah. I, I have to bring up this barely passing thing. Right. So I passed. I got, I got through it, but but it was not an enjoyable experience, and I hated it. But it turns out that I'm not alone and that it comes in the generally accepted culture of suck in math education. Oh. And I was very surprised by the following. Okay. It turns out a lot of math teachers suck. You know the old saying that uh, those who can't do teach? Yep. Yeah, I hate that saying. Yes, it's terrible. It, it, if you... If you teach, it's terrible. As it turns out, a lot of math teachers do suck. And this comes from John Taylor Gatto, who wrote uh, in his book, An Underground History of American Education, quote, typical examples of areas where mathematics teachers are often incompetent or semi-competent include... Colon, fractions, (laughs) long division, algebra, Ah! geometry, calculus, topology. In many countries, (laughs) would-be math teachers are required only to obtain passing grades of 51% in mathematics exams so that a math student who has failed to understand 49% of the math syllabus Throughout his or her education, can and often does become a math teacher. Oh no. Wait. His or her fears and lack of understanding pass naturally to his or her students.
1: Why would you pick what? Wait, how? I don't know. Why would you become a math teacher?
0: That seems like the worst thing to do with your life. Why would you do that? But here we are at a place where, you know, maybe if you only understood 51% of the math, you don't realize that <laughs> you could make more money elsewhere.
1: Oh, man. Okay. It's
0: sad. It's it's really, really sad. I'm not sure how that happens but it is what we're working with it is the foundation of american education and our impression of american education in mathematics but it turns out we're also uh, according to contemporary research we're also doing it wrong in how we teach not just who we ask to teach okay. and creating this this sort of um culture around math as a right or wrong thing and not as an exercise in understanding the processes that underlie mathematics is what is really damaging. And hmm. so I'd like to go back to the Asian kids, if I may, uh, in, in a desperate attempt to stamp out <laughs> <laughs> that horrific generalization I made yeah. as a fifth grader. <laughs> uh, I, I did make that generalization because that's what we were taught. Right. right. I'm not alone. Tell me you have heard this before.
1: Yes. That traditionally those some of those cultures are better at math.
0: Yes. Better at math. They teach math better. These are the things that we're that, that we're kind of indoctrinated. Oh, you're lousy at math. Well, you know, all those Chinese kids are going to outdo you as engineers. Right. That's kind of what we're that was the stereotype that we grew up with in the 80s. You know, that, yes,
1: that was very much a threat that was used. I remember that. That uh, reports would always come out that we're being uh, Americans are being outdistanced in math all the time. And as a result, the world's going to collapse. Right. So this common
0: belief, right, that says, you know, these that that there are entire cultures that are just better at math, it's. There's something to it. But in this case, we have generations of kids who were taught to explain or who were taught mathematics in a way that is zero sum. And that in these cultures, these Asian cultures, they have adopted a different way of thinking, of conceptualizing math. And the kids in these communities understand math differently than we do. So I I found this bit uh, on mindset, right? And it's all about how we approach thinking about mathematics and the work that goes into learning mathematics. And so we might compare, um, you know, students in the West with students in the East and Southeast Asia and decide that they're just naturally better at math or they appreciate math better and that everything else is equal. It turns out that is not necessarily the case. And research from Carol Dweck in her book, Mindset, the New Psychology of Success, the way those countries that are typically stereotyped as being better at math, that they don't they don't have such a fascination with the right or wrong binary um, sort of approach to mathematics education. Instead, they place more emphasis on effort than one's innate intellectual ability in school success, right? And so parents that place a higher emphasis on effort, on sitting down and practicing on uh, just trying to understand process, are actually helping children develop what dweck is calling this growth mindset and as soon as you have a growth mindset that and she says everyone has the ability to grow their intellectual ability to learn from mistakes and become more resilient learners again according to dweck uh, that you actually are teaching yourself to learn and thus helping to erase the anxiety that comes with your belief that you can't
1: learn right Okay. well, first, I enjoy hearing you say Dweck over and over again. And second, I can do that a
0: lot. She's fascinating. Is
1: it basically. So we're like two plus two is five, right? Wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Versus exactly. Well, you were close because my initial thought was, but it's math. There is there's no wiggle room. But instead of saying two plus two is five, you're
0: wrong. You say two plus two is five. Hmm. Is it? Let's get these. These four apples. And here's two of them and here's two of them. And let's understand why the symbol of these four apples when we bundle them together... Equals the word five. Hmm. What does that mean to us? How do we internalize that experience? And and sure. Uh, and how do we create new examples? One of the things that we know engages kids, young kids, uh, <laughs> young kids, old kids, all kinds of kids. Yeah. Uh, is, is that to engage their ability to learn? You have to engage their ability to be creative. You have to engage their ability to uh, turn on that creative mood. To learning. And that's something we don't traditionally do in young, or we didn't do in mathematics education. Now, we've gone way off the bend from anxiety, from my anxiety in (laughs) particular, which came from, oh my God, I hate feeling like this, this social pressure um, around math. And I put a face on it. But it turns out that's not true. Uh, that wasn't, a, that's not a real thing. And it turns out it was exactly the kind of thing a dumb fifth grader would believe. Um, <laughs> and and the, the reality is that we have a different way of thinking about mathematics. So how do you get through it if you deal with math anxiety? Because right now I still deal with it. And I had to go through, I mean, oh man, I, I studied a lot of psychology in undergrad and I had to get through statistics and I had to figure out how to do study. And I was paralyzed when it came to the numbers parts. I'm paralyzed by dinner receipts.
1: That is (laughs) probably my dad taught me an easy way to do 20%. And that's one of the reasons it's not even just out of the goodness of my heart. I only always tip 20% because I know how to do that math. (laughs) <laughs> and I have and that is like locked in a concrete thing in my head it doesn't go but if you can figure that out then you can figure out percentages of all no nope, I hate that nope, 20%, no no, no. Nope, 20%. 20 percent gotta go <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> that is absolutely true and that is for me too and the greatest thing that has happened to buying things uh is the uh it, it's uh like you know stripe and uh What was the, what are the service? Like, you know, the service, you go up to a food truck and there's, they have an iPad there, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. And you turn it around, you give them your card, you turn it around and they always have the pre-calculated tips. Are you going to get 5% or 10% or 20% or other? Yeah. I just always hit 20%. It's calculated. I don't even know the number. I don't care. Yeah. It just is what it is. (laughs) And what savage would choose other and have to calculate it himself? That's (laughs) nuts. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what math savage
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway it turns out here's the thing i learned that there's a thing called math and statistics therapy did you know that no interesting. it turns out there are people there are very special unicorn people in the world that are experts in and credentialed in both cal- counseling and mathematics education and they teach you math by teaching you why you have the anxieties that you have or addressing the anxieties you have in math. And as you get through learning to cope with math or with your anxiety, you actually walk out better at math. That is such a cool therapy. Wow. I would like to do it and, like, become bionic because at this point in my life, I'm sort of done with math.
1: Sure, you're just pressing whatever says 20% all around you. (laughs) Whatever says 20%.
0: (laughs) Uh, but I thought that was absolutely um, fantastic. So it turns out that there are some ways to get through the other side of of this sort of mathematics um, anxiety and to turn off the experience of fear that comes with um, your experience with numbers. You don't have to live that way. Uh, and uh, there are all kinds of ways to expose yourself to these building blocks. I always imagined it in in my own experience that I went through the kind of I hit the fifth or sixth grade and I had this sort of brick wall of math with some bricks missing you know <laughs> that we still moved through other concepts but there were these big holes and eventually the whole thing comes toppling down and because'm i don't I didn't have the skills that I needed to, to actually you know create a strong foundation yeah but we live in an era where you can avail yourself. To These things I when I it came time to have to help my kids with their math I try not to do it because my wife is exceptional in math. Okay. But I would sit down and, and go through the Khan Academy uh, material if you haven't played with Khan Academy, the the way they teach math there is I think the way we're talking about teaching math to look at process and effort and practice and not just you were wrong you're a failure. Uh, But to really understand how these how the numbers work together. And I find that fascinating. So um, I I think there's a lot of hope I don't live uh, with. It's not paralyzing to me to this day, but I also don't live or don't work in a field where I have to stand up in front of a whiteboard and demonstrate my uh, mathematical thinking. Sure. And I am very lucky because then we'd be having a different conversation. (laughs) Wait a minute. Hold on. What's Khan Academy Khan Academy? Con K H A N, Khan Academy. K-H-A-N-Academy.org. Khan uh, it, it, Academy. <laughs> if, you, if you want, you'll have to come down here to <laughs> org. Um con Academy.org does uh, is a an open source uh, education curriculum. And uh it's uh, you know the history of it is fascinating if you want to learn about khan himself and it's not the wrath of it it's a genuine story about a guy who wanted to create a place where you could learn uh, and so we started putting up mathematics uh, videos on youtube and creating a channel around um you know around helping through mathematical concepts and so you go to org, and you can click on say mathematics and you say i want to learn about fractions today and you click on the fractions lesson and that takes you to uh, a set of videos that are, you know, built into this incredible interface, but they're all hosted on YouTube. And oh, so they're wow. open to everybody. And it's huh. built this grade level appropriate and incredibly well connected uh or or aligned to, you know, Common Core, for example, or aligned to, you know, local education and and federal education standards, uh, these videos that can help you get your head around Um, You know what you're trying to learn and anybody can do it. It is completely open. You don't have to pay. You can donate if you can afford it to keep the thing running. It's like it's like the Wikipedia, but for
1: learning stuff. It's funny. I'm on the website right now and I'm looking at math. i'm feeling anxiety even though the website (laughs) the website is so seems so intuitive i haven't actually clicked on anything but yeah arithmetic pre-calculus ap calculus differential equations i don't know what those are don't start there don't Don't start there the
0: love of everything don't start there up next for you tom addition and subtraction
1: (laughs) that sounds great (laughs) i'm gonna get need to get some apples today's podcast is brought to you by audible get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com scent of a podcast over 188 thousand titles to choose from for your iPhone Android Kindle or mp3 player P
0: okay I have this book oh and I have to tell you I have to tell you the truth Oh. I have not read it yet, but you don't know I how have to an read. excuse. Oh, okay. I only know how to audible, <laughs> and that's why I go to audible.com. <laughs> <laughs> AudibleTrial.com No, that's not the story. The story is I saw the author and illustrator the author, comma, and the illustrator they're two separate people okay. uh, at a conference and they are incredibly fantastic and everything about this book is exactly what I want to read. So uh, as we record this it's on pre-order but it's coming and by the time you hear it it should be released. The book is How to Invent Everything A Survival Guide for the Stranded Time. Time. Time Traveler by Ryan North, (laughs) illustrated by Lucy Bellwood, and what is so great about it, the way he pitched this book at the conference was, I wanted to write the most dangerous book ever written, and so I went out and and cataloged all of the things that humanity could have invented earlier if we had only known how to put the pieces together, like we had all the pieces, (laughs) and we didn't know how to put them together, and as such, we delayed development for many thousands of years that we could have just and here's an example we started sewing buttons onto our clothes as fashion accessories like 1200 years before we figured out how to actually close our clothes with buttons by adding a slit to the other side think about that
1: (laughs) we just had buttons we just had buttons as like
0: brooches and didn't figure out that we could actually make shirts this book is so clever i mean they even talk about how much earlier we could have built the internal combustion engine ryan north and his illustrator lucy bellwood uh, you should definitely check out this book how to invent everything uh, a survival guide for the stranded time traveler by the time you hear this it will be available at audibletrial.com slash to the podcast.
1: And remember, we do not pay to advertise this show, so please share it with others that you think would be interested. Uh, five-star reviews and iTunes and Apple Podcasts are amazing, or just put it on your Facebook, anything. Show other people that you have this show that you like, and maybe they'd like it too. So thank you very much.
0: Coming up next week. This is why we do this show. Please begin. <laughs> I've taken off my shoes. I'm
1: nowhere near smart enough to be able to cook books, nor do I have books.
0: Uh, Oh, hey, uh, everybody. This is uh, is my brother Lloyd, and this is Lloyd's
1: little Peter. And so I was... (laughs) Classic Glenn! All right, Pete's out, everybody. So now it's my time. Okay. (laughs) Well, first, we're changing something stinky to what's that smell and what's that smell. Number two. (laughs) This week's tune has been your favorite song by Katrina Stone. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Tommy Metz the third. And I'm Pete Wright. We'll be back next week on what's that smell?
0: All right, stop recording before we say anything else stupid.